I'm Kate Hills and I'm on a one-woman mission to save UK manufacturing. In 2008, I gave up my 20-year career as a fashion buyer because I was disillusioned with how much product was being sourced overseas and I set out to uncover some of the amazing businesses that were still making in Britain. Since founding Make It British, I've discovered that there is not only still tons of manufacturing taking place in the UK, but that it's a thriving industry. I invite you to join me each week when I'll be telling the stories behind some of the best British-made brands and manufacturers and offering advice to those that want to make in the UK. So with no further ado, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the Make It British podcast. We're back to two episodes this week after the special five episodes that I did last week, which accompanied our Get Set for Manufacturing challenge. Um, Talking of the challenge and the Get Set for Manufacturing, many of you who took part or listened to the podcast have been asking about what's next. And you love being part of the challenge and you want to know if you can get more help and support. So the good news is, if you do want to work with me and you want me to help you develop a product which is manufactured in the UK and you want accountability with that and first-hand advice and you want to be in a group of people who are also going through the same process as you are, I am delighted to announce that the doors for my Get Set for Manufacturing course, which is online, they are now open. The course is going to be covering everything you need to know to help you find and work with your perfect UK manufacturing partner without getting frustrated, losing your motivation or even resorting to overseas factories. And there's also going to be a special online forum that accompanies the course for anyone who's taking part to enable you to ask questions and get feedback from me as you go along. So if that sounds like something you'd like to take part in, just go to makeitbritish.co.uk forward slash get set course to find out more. And if you are a manufacturer listening to this and you know someone who could benefit from some advice on how to best work with UK manufacturers, please do send them my way. Right, now on to the main part of the show. And talking of manufacturers, today I have a very special guest. Her name is Jenny Holloway and she is the owner of a company called Fashion Enter. And Fashion Enter is a social enterprise garment factory based in North London. And not only do they manufacture for small brands and startups, helping them create samples and small production runs, but they've also manufactured for some of the UK's most well-known retailers like ASOS and Marks and Spencers. So in this very frank interview, Jenny discusses with me how tough it was to set up a clothing factory, having previously come from a buying background, a bit like myself. And she also talks about how she runs an ethical factory and what that means. So anyone interested in understanding more about garment making and garment making in the UK in particular will find this interview fascinating. Um, Jenny really is, she truly is one of the trailblazers when it comes to reshoring textile manufacturing back to the UK. 
So I hope you enjoy this interview. As always, any links discussed um, are going to be in the show notes for this episode, which I you will find at makeitbritish.co.uk forward slash zero two one. OK, let's go. Hello, Jenny. Thank you very much for joining me today for this interview. Hi, Kate. It's a pleasure. Um, so you obviously run one of, if not the biggest garment factory in London, as well as a training school. Well, we're definitely the only one that's got a training school that has been um, accredited by ESFA and ABC awarding bodies. I don't know if I'm actually the biggest from a manufacturing perspective, but certainly we, we are certainly say we're the most one efficient case. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll come on to that later, Jenny, <laughs> definitely. But, but like me, your background is in buying. So I find it fascinating that you've gone from buying to manufacturing. Let's start back there. How did that all come about? How did you make that transition from one to the other? Well, it was quite an organic transition, to be honest. Um, I sort of went Littlewoods M&S and then Arcadia Group, where I was a senior buyer, and had two fantastic years at Arcadia as a senior buyer. And you know, at the right age, at the right time in your life, being a senior buyer is fantastic because um, you can travel the world. So you have yep. great teams. It's an exciting role. And then you start, well, in my case, um, I didn't always necessarily agree with some of the decisions of management. Um, and as a result of that, you know, the politics comes in. I've never been good at politics, Kate. I've never, Neither have I. <laughs> oh, I've never been able to, to say yes. <laughs> Because, you know, politically it's right, but you just know it's wrong. We're two peas in a pod there, Jenny. <laughs> and, and I think if you have a bit of a conscience as well, I, I just think you you just start going towards being self-employed. And um, I, I left the Arcade Group. We set up a brand called Retro. Um, and that sort of morphed into, um, remember the old, uh, oh, what was the name of the company? Uh, Pippa D. Remember the old Pippa D model whereby you yes. used to have selling agents? So we had selling agents. We had 150 selling agents all, all around the UK and they would have our collection, Retro UK, and uh, they would sell. And it was a fantastic way of selling collections. We were in 1999 doing 36,000 a week. It was fantastic. Oh, amazing. Yeah. And where was that product made? All in the UK. Brilliant. So yes. We're, what, yes. So we're talking pre nineteen nineties there, or nineteen yeah, nineties. And it was getting harder then. It was getting it was getting harder to find those um, CMT units. Well, that was um, a baptism of fire, really. Uh, I was very much thrown into production, but I did love it. I loved the people. I could appreciate for the first time the real skills. I think as a buyer, you don't actually realise how technically complicated garments are. And you certainly don't appreciate the skills of the machinist and the cutter and the finishers, et cetera. So that was my sort of first um, real review of how manufacturing works. And then how did that lead on to you setting up Fashion Enter? Well, it was a bit of a sad story, actually. So we'd, we'd built up um, Fashion UK over 10 years. And um, during that time, I married my um my husband, who I'd met when I was 15, I'd had two children and I had a third on the way. And actually, the, the business was, was just a bit of a monster. It was too big for really two people to keep control of. So I just really looked for a third party, a competitor to amalgamate with, who basically stabbed me in the back case, took all my collections, took the 150 sales force, and we lost everything in a two-minute conversation um, 
at 9.30 one night where he said, I feel very uncomfortable and I'm pulling out. And we literally yeah. lost everything. I think it takes, I mean, I had a setback like that very early in my career, similar sort of situation, but not on the same scale. It does take a setback like that, doesn't it, for you to kind of rethink things and and think, you know, okay, that didn't work, but I, I'm i going to make the next thing, make sure the next thing blooming well does. Did, well, is actually, that what happened? Well, actually, it was a funny thing that happened because I I felt incredibly stupid, Case. I felt, I mean, I've got a business studies um, degree and actually I specialised in law and all the advice we've given people over the years about partnerships, signed agreements, etc. I cannot believe I didn't follow. So that was just naive and foolhardy on my my side the initial shock I wanted to shoot the man's kneecaps off I was just like absolutely <laughs> enraged enraged um, and then when I calmed down I actually thought to myself you know when you have no money and you've got three children and I literally had to go to the social with a, and plead for a bag of shopping and I got a 20 pound note I came out of there thinking I was the richest person in the world and I think when you are that low financially, A, nothing seems to worry you again ever since. You can become a, more of a risk taker because actually you've survived. But more importantly, I just realized money actually for me wasn't that important. Yeah. And I got over my stupidness by thinking I am going to help people for the rest of my life. And I know that sounds very Brilliant. sort of, I know that sounds very sort of, you know, little halo shining, but honest to God, I just can't get over how utterly stupid I felt. I mean, to have lost everything that you build up over 10 years. And I did swear I would never have another partner. And I did, I did. Yeah. you know, I mean, it, it, it hurts so much, doesn't it? We're only human at the end of the day. But what doesn't kill you, ladies, makes you stronger. Exactly, so, especially us ladies. Us <laughs> ladies, yeah. I, I just think it was a defining moment in my life. I just thought... I, let's believe in karma what you give out you get back and let, let's build up um some some good and I, I then got a job with um the London Development Agency on a project called London Fashion Forum where I got paid to give advice <laughs> which was fantastic um and then that stopped and then I thought right I'm not going back to the world of buying uh, we're going to start a fashion enter and that was a social enterprise and it still is a social enterprise so you I mean, made a conscious decision to say right I'm now going to set up a sewing factory well, it sort of it came along because we were um, we, we had no money when we set up Fashion Enter. Um, Jenny Sutton, who's the director today, I'm development director. She was my intern, which we did pay her for, and we had this actually a grotty shop in Croydon where we we begged a free shop um, from a lovely man called David Parham from Central, and we traded. That's how we started the company, and we were giving out advice to young designers. So we were taking commission from sales. So we were genuinely trading. Um, and then we were recommending CMT units to people that I'd worked with years ago. And then I'd have phone calls at 10 o'clock at night on a Saturday with, you know, quite rightly, hysterical young designers saying, you recommended this factory and they ripped me off. And Kate, I felt so bad. I said, right, the only way to do this is to yeah. set up our own little workshop and we will make samples for these designers so that's how the um, the development into production started. You were a bit of a trailblazer with that, weren't you? Because I um, I did a podcast a couple of weeks ago talking about sort of the manufacturing trends that are happening. 
particularly within the textile industry. And I am seeing more and more designers setting up small workshops to make their own product and then yeah. also to make for other designers. Um, yeah, I mean, I totally agree with that. I mean, I, I just think the more crafts we can build back into production, the more we make beautiful garments, the more we appreciate the skills of the machinist and the cutter, it's only a good thing for the whole of the industry. Yeah. So at what point did you go from small sample units to, I mean, how many people do you employ now? You've got quite a lot of people there, haven't you? Yeah, we've got 107 in total. Um, and we've got about 85 that's in the machining side. That's yep. the fashion studio. So the workshop became the fashion studio when we're making samples for London Fashion Week designers down to a mom who's got a good idea. So uh, we offer a complete service in um, illustration, design, specking, grading, first fits, etc. And the other side to that is you're also making now for a lot of the big retailers as well, aren't you? So how do you make that work from the high volume stuff? I mean, I mean if you can give examples, I don't know whether you are happy to share the sort of names of the people that you work with. Yeah, um, it's quite a, it's two ends of the spectrum, isn't it? Whereas you've got a lot of manufacturers who will only specialise in doing small runs or, or yeah. the volume business. How have you made both sides work for those two different types of customers? We've had different branding. So um, the fashion studio has been going since 2008. Um, and I couldn't believe how successful that was so quickly. But, but we were very genuine. You know, we'd say to somebody, yeah, we think that's going to take about three and a half hours and you can come in and watch it being made if you want to. Yeah. We are totally transparent. And it was never about the money, Kate, as I explained to you. It was more about feeling satisfied and doing a good job. And there is some fantastic designer talent out there and we should be supporting them for bigger and better things. I so agree, yeah. But we were making samples. I don't know how we got the contract, actually, um, for making samples for ASOS. They were they wanted some press samples. I think it may have been through Karen Downey, actually. So she was the buying director at the time, and she said that they had some press samples that they need make need making. So we did that. And then I was at a meeting. I think it was the press launch, and I bumped into Robert uh, Nick Robertson, the MD, and I said an off-the-cuff remark. Nick, one day you're going to need a factory for fast track fashion. So I don't yep. ever call fast track throwaway fashion. I just call fast track two to three weeks lead time. Yeah, so fast response, not yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, so that sort of gets my goat on social media when people keep saying about fast fashion, it drives me insane. Yeah, and implying that fast fashion equals cheap fashion. I yeah. completely agree. Yeah. Completely. What, so what, what year would that have been that you said that to ASOS, that you predicted that big retailers like them would want more local manufacturing? That was 2010. So about and the same time as I set up Make It British. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah, aligned in the stars, Kate. Well, <laughs> no, we could both see it, couldn't we? Because you're a similar yeah. age to me. We started our careers when everything was made in the UK. Yeah. And we saw, you know, all sorts of changes happen over the last 20, 30 years. And you you, you know it's going to come back and you knew it was going to come back because, well, for so many different reasons, but particularly for this fast response. I've got to give real credit to Nick Robertson because, you know, this guy – didn't know me at all. You know, he knew I was making nice samples. And to be fair to him, he, he said, that's not a bad idea. How much do you think it would cost? Oh, so, did he? So the first thing he asked was price. 
Yeah, which, you know, he's, he's like, he's on it, isn't he? He's a great guy. And I said, I would hazard a guess and say about a quarter of a million. I didn't really know, but it was like these opportunities come once in your life. And we did get a soft loan option of £230,000 by ASOS to set up a factory. Amazing. So how lucky were we? That Amazing, though, that, that man. I mean, that's obviously why their business, you know, has gone it's grown so quickly because he, someone that was leading the company had the foresight to yeah. see something like that and to believe in you and to to invest in you like that. So that was it. So then you went from small studio to large volume business. You must have yeah. had to employ loads of staff pretty much overnight to do that, as well yeah. as move into a new building and I think, all that um, investment. I'd say it was pretty damn naive to think that I could have gone from making beautiful samples to suddenly running production. Um, it was I was so 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 outside my comfort zone in a quite um, a stressful period. Lots of tears, I would say, Kate, on the night time, thinking, "Christ, what have I done?" Same with me running a trade show. It's exactly. But yeah. I think it's those pushing <laughs> yourself out of the trade, out of the comfort zone, yeah. that makes things happen, doesn't it? But I also was so loyal to Nick Robertson. And then I also came along Nick Byton, who's now the current uh, CEO. And these are such good guys. I just could not have ever looked at myself in the mirror if I'd have let them down. I just couldn't have. I felt as though um, it was an honoured position to be in. I was incredibly grateful. And that factory was bloody well going to work. I don't don't care what it took. And it it took a long time to make it work. I was really learning on the job. Well, the one thing that we did right from day one is that we never compromised on quality. So we could have subcontracted out. We we could have, you know, we were under pressure. Suddenly we were inundated with orders. We didn't know what to do first. We had no methodology. We had no flow in the factory. We could have so easily said to the unit around the corner, quickly make this for me. But we didn't. And we also didn't do anything unethical either. We didn't pay anybody cash. We we made sure that they were working correctly. And I'm really proud that we didn't go for that quick book. And, you know, I had a few telling off in the early days, like, what are you doing? And like, you're late. And, you know, it was it was just a gigantic mess to start off with. So what sort of changes did you have to make from when you went from being a Small workshop making for startup designers to making for for ASOS. Well, it was completely and utterly different because you're going from a one-to-one relationship making one beautiful garment, basically, to suddenly dealing. We we opened with 16 in the factory and um, we had a, a factory manager, which proved to be horrendous, actually. The first factory manager we found, we had... Um, two cutters and we had about three presses and because we'd had such a weak manager I didn't know what I was doing and I was be the first to admit that we just we just really messed up you know we were late on everything um we had no flow we had no systems uh, the machinists clearly knew we didn't know what we were doing either so it was just the most awful time However, I was very proud of the fact that um, we did not compromise on our ethics or our quality standards and literally to have made a fast book and to have kept ASOS happy at the time. We could have taken the orders next door around the corner and got them made and brought them in on time. So they wouldn't have really known at that time, but I just couldn't do it. So I felt as though 
they trusted me with their money and I had to do it properly. And I'm actually really glad I kept that ethos because that's put us in very, very good stead because we've always had systems, policies and procedures in place. We had to learn as we went along and it, it took us a good a good year and a half, if not two years, to really get the factory working and understanding issues and problems and getting pricing right. You know, that was the other thing. We were we were incorrectly costing. We weren't um, looking at standard minutes correctly. So um, a huge, huge, huge learning curve, one that gave me sleepless nights walking around my bedrooms and, and tears and, oh, but, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, as I keep saying. So it, it was a fantastic learning curve. And now the staff you've got, you, um, in order to incentivise them, you don't pay them just on an hourly rate, do you? Do you want to tell me a little bit more about how you incentivise your staff to make sure that they not only sort of enjoy and work, enjoy what they do and work hard, but also that it works well for the factory? Yeah, it's a, it's a funny thing, actually. It's almost, I suppose, a bit of complacency. So everything was going really, really well. Um, so I'd say this is like year two to year four. We were building up the machinists from about 16. We went to 25. We went to 35. Everything in the garden was pretty damn rosy. And then um, I would say a bit of complacency came in, whereby people talk about having different qualities within us in a factory i totally disagree with that in my book you can only have one quality and everybody works to it but what you have is machinists who are faster than others and what tends to happen is the faster machine machinist gets paid more because they're making more garments but actually if the price differential is 50p a pound an hour you work eight 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 hours a day the price differential of eight pounds actually is not a significant motivator and in fact, if anything, it has a negative impact because the machinists start going slower and slower because they're going to get their money anyway. Yeah, there is no, there's just no incentive to do anything. And it was actually Nick Byton who said to me, um, the, the current CEO of Tavisoft, he said, if you look at performance-related pay, on average, um, productivity increases by 14%. I'll never forget Yeah, it. I can believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I will say in our situation – Bringing in the system that we use, which is called Galaxius, through a guy called Mark Randall, a very talented guy, we went from 4,000 garments a week up to about 7,500 garments a week. With the same amount of staff? Same amount of staff. Amazing. Absolutely unbelievable what people can achieve when they are correctly incentivised to earn yeah. money, but but they can't compromise on quality because that's always the risk. So when you say about that system, that's a that's a... CAD, uh, sorry, that's a computer program, isn't it? So yes, it's a, cl a cloud-based system whereby each machinist has got um, an old phone. Uh, it's got um, a, um, a barcode reader on the phone. Every bundle that we make has a barcode for every operation. And every operation has a time. And that time relates back to... Um, a very fair rate over minimum pay, so you know roughly eight pounds fifty to nine pounds per hour. But it means that anything that they make over that time is their money. 
Uh, and it's, you know, we've, we've got people who on average are on £12 an hour and our best machinists are on £17 an hour. Brilliant. It's, yeah, it's fantastic for them. Um, and also the quality is never compromised because literally we can trace that car, that uh, barcode all the way back to every stitcher, every finisher. Um, we haven't done it on pressing yet because actually it's quite complicated on pressing because the presses are so fast. But it means that our quality is not compromised. If anything, um, you know, if there are issues, then we stop the clock and they have to make repairs in their own time. Fantastic. So anyone that says that um, working in the garment industry, you know, work, working as a machinist is really low pay, then yeah. you're a shining example that it's not. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're based in London and we've got big rates, big rents uh, to pay as well. And I just know that if we can make it work um, and that system of galaxies isn't exclusive to us. You know, I, I'd love all manufacturers to be on it. And we are a genuine social enterprise. So we're here to help everybody, uh, young designers and manufacturers alike. Good luck to people. That's my Thank view. Fantastic. So um, what advice then, having said all that, what advice would you give to someone who was in your shoes as you were sort of 10 years ago, who's thinking of setting up their own small production unit. What would you have done differently if you did oh, it all over knew, again? I wish I'd known about that Galaxia system much, much earlier. Um, you know, we, we made so many fundamental mistakes. Um, so my first advice is systems and processes. You've got to have a way of monitoring what you cut, what's delivered, make sure there's no shrinkage. I mean, we, we used to have thefts, uh, which we don't have now. Um, and everything is automated, so we know exactly where every garment is. Um, even if you have an Excel spreadsheet and, and your own critical path, you have got to have a system for monitoring so yeah, that's so true. Advice. That's so true for any business. In fact, for any designer as well, they need to be to have systems in place, don't they? Yeah, and it's also the, the stock holding. So, for example, for the young designer who's setting up now um, their own workshop and she wants to make for other people, if that delivery goes in hanging, normally it's it's a minimum order of a thousand hangers. Well, if you don't keep the inventory of those seven hundred. Um, hangers that you haven't used because the order size is only 300 your your hanger cost now is 30p not 10p uh, per cost and it's those little things that really impact oh god it really it really impacts because we are like grocers you know we're dealing with pennies and the more efficient yeah. you are the more money you can save and i want people to do well god life's too short you know so that that's the first thing about their systems and processes I think, um, secondly, come and see what we're doing. I will gladly open my doors, and if I can help people, I will, because I think life's too short to sort of hold information back. Um, I think keep your spirit level level. So um, if you have a bit of a crisis and your machinist hasn't turned up and you've got an order going out, um, don't try and rush the garment. I wouldn't give it to another machinist to do. Honesty is the best policy and um, have that relationship with the, the client because once trust and uh, business integrity goes, you haven't really got anything else. I mean, yeah. I, I believe that in my life. I just think that it's, it's only flaming money at the end of the day. I know it's important. I know we all have to pay our bills, but don't compromise yourself. I, I just, 
we, we're in a very difficult industry and there's lots of smoking mirrors and there's lots of air kisses. But the, the truth <laughs> is, yeah. you know, they are frocks. They are garments. You know, we, we need a bit of soul in ourselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, talking about sort of ethical and, you know, and being doing the right thing, you mentioned at the beginning some of the accreditations that you have. If a designer is looking at a factory, if anyone is looking to work with a factory, what sort of accreditations should they look for and ask the manufacturer if they have, if they want to know if that factory is working ethically? Well, there's, there's two main audits. Um, there's the um, SMETA audit, S-M-E-T-A, um, and that's very universally recognised. And then there's the newer audit, which is the fast forward audit, which um, is much more ethically orientated. So it actually goes into your bank account and it looks at your transactions and it's looking for cash withdrawals in case you're paying staff. Um, when the auditor comes in on fast forward, they will also bring in the machinists themselves, give out the business cards and say, do you need to contact me? Um, if there's anything wrong in any way, then um, you can call me out of hours. Um, and that's been very effective, not, not in our organisation, but I'm, I'm aware that machinists that may have had their money stopped or been paid half pay or have to give the cash back to the manufacturer owner, um, you know, that does go on, unfortunately. So if a factory doesn't have one of those two audits, are you saying walk away or work with that manufacturer to try and um, get them signed up to one of those? Because it costs money, doesn't it, for a manufacturer to have the audits? Yeah, and it's, and it's a lot of money. So, no, I wouldn't say walk away, but I think be aware of what what the audit is and what the questions are and what to look out yeah. for, and then go into that factory and, and make sure that they are adhering to those policies. I mean, one thing I would always ask now is that RTW, right-to-work documentation, you don't want illegal immigrants because if um, the borders agencies... Uh, make a swoop, they have the power to close down factories, you may get your garments embargoed. Yeah. You, know, you know, it's just not worth the risk. And also, why would you, as a, as a young designer, want to give work to unethical people? You know, they're, they're coercing their workforce to make money. And, it, you know, God, I just think life's too short, Kate. I just, yeah, I mean, that's what I say. If you sort of work it back and look at what your cost price is and knowing that the the living wage in the UK is pretty much eight pounds. Do you really think that garment can be made? Yeah, um, exactly. For that sort of price, if it's something's too cheap and it's made in the UK, you've got to question it, and you shouldn't be selling your brand made in the UK just on on price alone because it's just a slippery slope. Yeah, it's quite interesting because I, I also think um, this is quite controversial now, Kate. But I will say this anyway. I, I you know, we, we obviously use Twitter accounts and. Um, you know, we're, we're big fans of Stella McCarthy. We, we know she's, she's sort of led the way in ethical production and sustainable production. And yet there was um, a recent post and she said about her new menswear range and it's made in Italy. Why? Why is it made in Italy? Yeah, why, why not why, here? Why, why are retailers, brands, designer brands, whoever, in, in, increasing that carbon emissions footprint when we now have wonderful garment manufacturing here in the UK, it is not an excuse to say that we're too expensive because we certainly are not. 
Buyers need to look at the exit margin, not the intake margin. And you've done so loads agree. of work on this case. You have you have done some fantastic work on this, proving that when you take in reprocessing the the cost of transportation and freight, the visits to hotels to go and look at your stop, it's rubbish. It's, yeah, it's exactly. Let alone the fact that just one order has to turn up and if the whole thing's wrong and you have a disagreement with that manufacturer and they're overseas and you can't sort it out, you've lost that entire order. And that's less likely to happen if you can go, like you've just said, you know, you're open doors at your factory, aren't you? Anyone can yeah. come in, another manufacturer, a designer, they don't have to be making with you. They can come in and see how the whole process works and how an ethical factory runs. And I think that is, that's, you know, it's amazing that you do that. And I think more yeah, and more factories are starting to do that. To. Exactly. Yeah. Um, one thing I do want to talk about that I think is really interesting is that you are now launching, well, you've just, just launched your own brand as well, haven't you? And so you, um, what, has, what has made you decide that you're not just going to be making for other brands, but you wanted to do your own? Did you have that kind of product developer buyer itch again to, to launch products? What brought um, that about? Well, first of all, I don't think I'm a designer at any stretch of the imagination. I was a strong senior buyer, mainly because actually I think I'm very objective rather than subjective. Um, I'd rather be in a pair of my job person than being in any designer clothes. I'm just not that type of person. But I, I felt exposed. Um, as a company, I've always got to think strategically. I've got 107 uh, mouths to feed and they've got children and we do employ a lot of single women who've got children. So I'm always very conscious about what the future is for the company. And um, it's not often we fall out as a company here, uh, but we decided um, actually two years ago to create a collection. And um, we've got, we had this trade name called Bells of London, B-double-L-E-S. And I've always liked the name um, and we've just kept the name going, but we, we didn't use it. And then we decided, right, this is the year, 2018 is the year we're going to create this collection. And oh my God, we fell out. Uh, we, we are such a close flat team but when you start talking about well I like this and I like that you know it's all very subjective and it's all very personal and I said I can't do this I can't do it like it's actually we're all out of our comfort zone what we're going to do instead you are the bells like the company I'm not the company we are the bells so we are going to go through the workforce and we're going to add more and more of our workforce as bells. So for ease, we started with myself, Caroline, who's production director, and Jenny Sutton, who's development director. And we were tasked to do basically six styles that we would wear ourselves. Ah, so you, do, you did six styles each? Yes. So each of Brilliant. us do six styles. And then, you know, we, we've got this sort of cheesy video i think that's what i've I would seen call it it's not cheesy it's great <laughs> oh, it's cheesy. <laughs> but, um, but it was fun it was fun i mean i, I wore like full makeup i only wore full makeup you look very makeup. glamorous i'll put one of those pictures in the uh, show notes for the <laughs> podcast as well you all look super glamorous yeah well you know i mean i do think jenny and caroline are really attractive women but um, even my husband said like oh you brush it quite well again <laughs> <laughs> brilliant so, but it, it's just it was just great for the workforce and the, the next three are being selected and actually I'm very proud because we we have a lady called Kate um who works in Bristol on our fashion capital site and she's got multiple sclerosis 
fantastic woman. I mean, I just so admire her. And we're going to arrange for her. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, so she does boxing and... Um, I just admire her grit and tenacity. So I said, right, we'll, we'll design you six items of your choice. Just give us sketches and we're going to create six for you. So that's what I want to do. It, it's going all back to the social enterprise side again. Yeah. And it, it's getting our workforce engaged. And how can people um, find that brand, Bells of London? Are you selling it just direct through your own website or do you yes, plan to? You're not getting involved with any retail retailers well, with that. We are talking to two people, actually, funny Ooh, enough. But I, won't, exciting. I won't say who. I won't no, say who I understand that. In the early days. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll have a go. And, I mean, more than anything else, it, we know it's a slow burn. It's going to take time. But it's, you know, it, it's, got a, it's got a heart and it's got a bit of soul and it's all made ethically. So it's very much. Oh, and actually, a shout to uh, Ron Smart of RA Smart. Oh, yeah. Has he done your printing for you, has he? Yes. And he really encouraged us to do it. And our silk prints from Macclesfield are lovely. These Excellent. are the ones I want you to see, Kate. I know, I and I have to say, I didn't realise that um, <clears throat> the three of you had each designed six pieces because I like the stuff that you're wearing best in the photo shoot. Oh, so I obviously like your you designs, that. don't I? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not that I'm biased and you didn't pay me to say that. <laughs> right, brilliant, Jenny. It's been fantastic speaking to you. I'll let you get on because you've got a very, very busy factory to run. Um, yes. If people do want to come and visit you, because I always encourage anyone to go and visit a factory, how can they do that? Do you have certain open days or do they just drop you an email and say they want to visit? The best thing to do is just drop an email to Jenny Sutton. Oh, she's going to love me for saying this, Kate. So it's uh, <laughs> J-N-N-I at fashion-enter.com and we'll organise it. That's, that's the easiest way for everybody. Brilliant. Okay, great. Right. Really wonderful talk to you, Jenny. I will put all the details for your brand and um, your factory in the show notes for this podcast. Oh, and um, I will Thank be up to Kate. visit you very, very soon to get a fitting for my Bells of London outfit. And can I just say, Kate, thanks for all the work you do for the industry. I mean, I, I do have a real soft spot for you, Kate, because I know how hard you work. So thank you very oh, much. Oh, well, yeah. We, I mean, you have to, the, the, unless you work hard and, and do all this stuff, you know, if we don't do it, who is? I mean, that, yeah. I think we both were that situation. We thought if someone doesn't do something now to stop the decline in the UK garment making industry, then it's just going to be gone forever. So, yeah. but it's on the way up again. So yes. it's fantastic, fantastic, isn't it? Brilliant. Have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Have a wonderful 2018, Jenny. 2019. Oh, my God. <laughs> Have a wonderful 2019. I look, yeah. I look forward to seeing you really soon. Oh, great. Thanks, Kate. Bye-bye. If you're interested in discovering UK manufacturers from the fashion, textiles and homeware sectors, you should definitely come to our trade show, Make It British Live. The next event is taking place on the 29th and 30th of May 2019 at the Business Design Centre in London. With over 200 exhibitors, inspiring talks just like the ones you've been listening to on this podcast and interactive workshops, it's the perfect place to network with others that want to see UK manufacturing thrive again. Registration is now open. Just go to makeitbritishlive.com forward slash register to register for a free ticket. 
If you're a British-made manufacturer or brand and want to find out how your business can benefit from being involved in the show, just visit makeitbritishlive.com forward slash exhibit, fill out a short questionnaire, and one of my team will get straight back to you. To reach out to me personally, the best place to do this is via LinkedIn. Just look up Kate Hills and you'll find me. You'll also find me on Twitter at Make It British and Instagram at Make It British too. For all show notes for these podcasts, just go to makeitbritish.co.uk forward slash podcast and you'll find all the details. And make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing in iTunes, Stitcher or whichever is your preferred podcast app. And I really would love it if you left me a little review on iTunes. The more reviews this podcast receives, the more people will discover it and the more we can spread the word about making in the UK. Thanks once again for listening to the Make It British podcast. Bye.